0: This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. A symphony orchestra gets a gleaming new concert hall. It's a symbol of cultural ambition and civic pride, even a centerpiece of urban renewal. Or is it an albatross and a money pit with costs that ultimately come back to bite the organization? Recent history with orchestras in Philadelphia and Detroit and now Nashville suggests the dangers of the build-it-and-they-will-come philosophy. We'll get three views on this today. Joining us first is Nina Cardona, host and reporter at Nashville Public Radio. So this is a developing story. The new Nashville Symphony Hall opened just a few years ago, was touted nationally as a big success story. How did they get into so much trouble over the new hall?
1: Well, they opened the doors in 2006, in late 2006, September 2006 to be specific. And as we know, the economy didn't last much longer before things started going downhill. And donations just plummeted almost as soon as the recession began. And they were depending on donations going up. Uh, Of course, donations being the bread and butter. Uh, for most orchestras anymore. Ticket sales just (laughs) almost a drop in the bucket. It just killed them. It just killed them. And then there was a flood on top of that in 2010. So after a couple of years there of donations just being in the basement, their basement literally flooded with water and did $40 million worth of damage to the building. Insurance and FEMA money didn't cover it all. In the meantime, they're taking money constantly from their endowment, and they had put the money that they raised for the building, they had decided to risk the chance that they could make more money on it, and they put it in the endowment instead of paying off the building.
0: But, yeah, because so I read that they had, in storm fact, of things. they had raised all the money for the building and could have Almost, paid off the building. Yeah. And yeah, then- was,
1: the, the, the cost of the building was roughly $125 million, and they raised roughly $123 million but they took out $102 million in bonds rather than just paying it off. And so this year they decided to... uh try to renegotiate their debt, their outstanding debt on the building, and the bank didn't want to do that. And uh, the bank (laughs) scheduled a foreclosure auction for June 28th. Uh, We did get some good news, though, on Friday that they had finally reached an agreement, which means the auction's not going to happen. They are not foreclosing on the building.
0: So was it a case of bad luck or bad management or both?
1: You know that's 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 the question everybody is asking and trying to figure out. I mean on the one hand, it, things looked so good going into building that building. They raised so much money so quickly. It seemed to be such a great sign of the support that the symphony could depend on. Um they had though come out of bankruptcy not even a decade before. So this is this very fast move. There are so many signs that the, the community is ready to really have this great thing and pay for it, but it's so, based on such a short time of those signs being strong, that it, it's hard to say if, if anybody should have seen problems there that they didn't. Uh, but so many people, so many smart money people in town thought that this was a good bet to invest their money in, and it just went south.
0: Okay, thank you. Let's bring in now our other two guests. Adrian Ellis is the head of AEA Consulting, which advises arts groups on cultural construction. He was previously the executive director of jazz at Lincoln Center. And joining us on the phone is Graydon Royce, classical music critic of the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He's been covering the Minnesota Orchestra's season-long lockout and how that ties into the renovation of Orchestra Hall in Minneapolis. Adrian, I'm going to ask you first, what do you make of the situation in Nashville?
2: I think... Nashville is a combination of some very bad luck. I think the flood was very bad luck. Clearly, the juxtaposition of the opening and then the recession was bad luck. But there's also a pattern there, too, clearly. And the pattern is around a a sort of convergence of a lot of civic ambition around very expensive pieces of kit, i.e. concert halls combined with long-term either static or declining audiences and critically important patterns in philanthropy because orchestras and their concert halls are predominantly around local philanthropy, and one's got to follow what's happening in the the depth of philanthropy to really see what exactly the underlying story is. And all the orchestras are in different ways seeking to address their underlying cost base and organized labor. So there's a lot of, you know, it's a complicated picture. Um, One tiny point, though, I mean, I'm not sure whether it's tiny or big. You started with a great quote that we hear a lot, which is, build and they will come. There is no such quote. That is to say, if you watch the film or you read Joe Kinsella's book, which is, of course, the field of dreams, the underlying quote is, build and he will come. And the question is, who is he? And it's either um, shoeless Joe Jackson, or it's the protagonist played by Kevin Costner, his dad. In other words, it's one dead person. So, um, <laughs> and not so, all the live ones right. you want to fill. So, the, um, I think that that quote, that quote is is a fantastic way in which our sector has grabbed something, uh, misquoted it, and played it back for rhetorical effect. And of course, the correlation between building and coming is by no means obvious.
0: Your job is to guide arts organizations when they're undertaking new building projects. What is it that motivates those? Just upgrading old facilities or do these orchestras have the build it and they will come syndrome of loftier aspirations?
2: There are so many drivers. There's civic pride. There is at some level, failure of imagination. In other words, what are we going to do strategically in order to create uh, momentum behind us? And you often find sort of museum extensions and uh, new facilities are not so much the um, the, the result of, of deep imagination, but of actually thinking. Well, yes, here's something we can all get around. But there's no doubt that concert halls uh, like the Nashville Concert Hall are beautiful instruments that allow a great orchestra to be heard in ways that you will never be heard otherwise and I think the drive towards really beautiful acoustics and in the last 20 years 30 years there have been some fantastic halls built with respect to acoustics, not all but some and then there are other things that people require, circulation, space, amenities etc and so you get a sort of a competitive fight if you like between cities for you know what sort of city are we? Are we really a city that can't afford a great concert hall? Of course not and so there's a, there is that competitive element between cities. So often, the long-term viability of the facility is only one factor in many factors that are informing the decision.
0: Graydon Royce is joining us from out at a golf tournament. So if you hear a little bit of applause in the background, that might be the reason. Graydon Royce yeah, won't is be for me. <laughs> As classical music critic of the Minneapolis Star Tribune, you have been looking at a slightly different situation. The Minnesota Orchestra lost all of last season when it locked out the musicians. Management has been asking them to take steep pay cuts. All the while, there is a $50 million renovation of Orchestra Hall underway. So what is the orchestra management's argument for pursuing both of those at once?
3: I mean, this has been a a football... through the entire lockout. And the management argument is that the lobby in particular needed to be um, updated. The hall was uh, built in 1974. So there are a lot of American Disability Act uh, issues with the lobby, and it's not big enough, there's not enough space. And B, the, the, the lobby, but they're also refurbishing the hall itself, the auditorium. Their argument is that this is uh, important to their strategic plan, because they need um, a better facility to generate more money, to monetize more off nights, to bring in other community events and also uh, concerts from outside that are not necessarily just the Minnesota Orchestra. I mean, the argument is that it's um, a money generator.
0: But that leaves the question of with whether there will be an orchestra to fill that hall come next season. Yeah.
3: Yeah, right. That's a, that's a tough question right now. I mean, uh, the, the two sides are not talking and uh, haven't uh, been for quite some time. The hall is supposed to open in August, although, again, as you point out, what are they going to open with? I think this uh, dispute is going to require some form of mediation.
1: We're in an interesting situation in Nashville at the moment in that, you know, in the midst of this foreclosure crisis, uh, the musicians' contract has come due. Uh, they entered into contract negotiations at the end of last week, um, and, and very shortly after that, you know, the, the deal comes through with uh, to, to avoid the foreclosure. Nashville Symphony, as I mentioned, had come out of bankruptcy about a decade before they opened this new hall. And that initial, that bankruptcy, which took a long time to come out of, that started off with a labor dispute. As part of coming out of that bankruptcy, they put musicians on the board. They did a lot to build a much, much better relationship between the management and uh, the musicians of the Nashville Symphony. And we've seen a lot of very supportive statements from the musicians' union as they were getting ready for these negotiations. And as soon as they started, they uh, both sides agreed to a media blackout. So we don't know. We're not hearing from them how things are going. But there are little pieces— uh, Despite being primarily very supportive of, of the orchestra, little pieces of language in the releases that they had during this foreclosure crisis of their commentary on the foreclosure issue, yes, trying to be very supportive of the the symphony, but trying to kind of make jabs at the bank, make them out to be the bad guys, but also inserting these little lines, you know the musicians are not the reason the finances aren't good. You may have made some wrong-headed decisions about how to spend the money that's coming in. You may have uh, not done the best thing with investments and might not have made the best decisions about the building. That's not our fault. And, and don't have that be on our backs. <laughs> and they're saying this just as they're going into contract negotiations. I, th- I think there's a definite message there.
0: So we had a Detroit Symphony Players strike in 2010, and then the Philadelphia Orchestra filed for bankruptcy in 2011. Both of those grew out of financial problems connected to their halls. How much did the trouble with those halls and the extrication from that trouble set a precedent for other arts groups?
2: Every orchestra is looking in microscopic detail towards each one of these eruptions, if you like, to see how they play out and what can be learned from it. So I think that they are regarded as highly important and significant because I think partly because of the relationship, as you say, between the real estate and the overall business model, but I think much more between it's it's about how those negotiations between – uh, management, and the musicians' union, really. I think that's at the heart of it. It's clear that there are no obvious... Uh, the long-term viability of the solutions that have come out of um, uh, whether it's Philadelphia or Detroit was the settlement something that sort of reset the clock and has resulted in a stable, long-term future, or is it the case that simply at some point, you know, uh, somebody blinked, a deal was done in order to survive, but not necessarily to thrive?
1: know, I- in, in November... In this past November, I spoke with Alan Valentine, who's the CEO of the yeah. Nashville Symphony Orchestra. And we had just noticed some things in their annual report. You know, 50 percent of their operating funds were coming out of the endowment and asking him, what what is going on financially there? And, of course, he didn't want to speak in too much in detail. I, but I brought up the issue of other symphonies that we were clearly seeing having issues, the ones that you've named. And he said... I wouldn't say that we are in any less of a crisis, but I think that we can manage our way out of it better than others have. And now we see what's happened since. But that quote was in my mind uh, recently as I talked to Gregory Sando, who, you know, is an independent journalist who covers classical music. And and he was saying, you know, you so often see this kind of head in the sand mentality in the arts world and orchestras specifically looking at others who are having problems and going, oh, that's awful. We're in so much better shape, though. Even though we're having trouble, we're not them. We're not them. And it's, you know, there's right. got to be a little more honesty.
2: But systemic optimism, I mean, absolutely. But but systemic optimism is also required at some level to keep these shows on the road. That's And, true. you know, I can remember sitting around a table with uh, people planning one of these um, facilities and, um, you know, doing my lugubrious long-term business, you know, spiel, and them hissing at me, 2020 vision kills all projects. And uh, what they meant was that exactly that, that if, you know, perfect foresight, then um, you probably wouldn't do anything. You'd just say, "Oh my God, it's all too much difficult." So a certain amount of, uh, uh, to some extent, let's just take a, a really obvious um, uh, case: Sydney Opera House. Sydney Opera House is probably the most uh, famous building in the world, iconic. Uh, it's one of the few post-war pieces of architecture that most people universally embrace. It was, you know, fifteen years late. It was four hundred times over budget, and it doesn't work very well as a concert hall um, or an opera house. Uh, uh, sorry, I should say an opera house. It works <laughs> better actually as a concert hall as an opera house, and, you know, in effect. So is it success or is it a failure? The criteria often take a long... I mean, the underlying point is there are all sorts of different criteria for success. Financial aren't the only ones. And often it takes a long time before... Those criteria with which one is neurotically obsessed when one's in the middle of it, which is, is, is it on time, is it on budget, uh, become sort of overtaken by the long term of what this thing does in terms of its vitality and its contribution to the city's self-esteem and the opportunity for people to listen to wonderful music that they wouldn't otherwise have listened to. So to some extent, um, we we can judge over harshly in the short term, and you have to take a l- very long-term view about these buildings.
0: And are we expecting too much of these buildings?
2: Yes, in too short a time, the real judgment is, will Nashville, in twenty years' time have drawn enormous benefit in uh, for its cultural vitality from this Now, there is a question around that of course i mean, i 'm not saying i 'm not saying yes, of course it will, and the question around it is of course, around the place of classical music in the long term uh, and its place in people 's hearts and affections, and that goes back to patterns of education and kids' access to classical music and all. So there's a much larger a much changing larger. ecology. <laughs> yes. And so right. uh, we may be judged very harshly.
1: Well, and I, I would say you know, one argument that I think is sometimes made for the hall here in Nashville is that having this this hall gave Nashville Symphony its own home for the first time. It had always been renting concert space, essentially, in, in, other, in buildings owned by other entities. Having its own space, having... A home has given it a chance to really substantially beef up its educational outreach and be able to have really substantial programs where students come in and are better exposed to classical music and try to help kids learn to love it in a way that they had not had the resources to do because they didn't have a place to bring them. I guess maybe Can the architectural
0: argument could also be made. You mentioned the Sydney Opera House. The American equivalent concert hall-wise would probably be the Walt Disney Hall Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. which was an architectural marvel. Is the success of that sort of influencing everybody now to want to try and build their own Walt Disney Hall?
2: I think they do anyway. In other words, I think that I'm sure that they pray and aid Disney Hall. And it is a fantastic building. It works well as a concert hall. But Underlying, it is also in a global city. It's in a, it, you know, it is much easier to do something in a London or a New York or a Los Angeles or a Shanghai. If you've got an, uh, a, an underlying demographic as large as that, then your penetration can be much smaller. So what you can do in an L.A. or a New York um, or a global city, you can't necessarily do in a Nashville or a, um, Minneapolis. a Minneapolis. And that's an issue.
3: No, I think that, uh, you know, the point about international and national cities is really important. It's, it's uh, for example, in theater. We've got a great theater community in Minneapolis, but New York is uh, driven by tourists. It's driven by visitors from out of the city. And that, I think, is something that uh, it's very difficult for uh, Minneapolis or Nashville to deal with, even though Nashville, of course, has a great music industry that draws people to the city also
0: but not That's necessarily to classical music.
3: Not yeah, exactly, not exactly. Not not really to classical music.
1: Well, I will point um, I will point out they very strategically placed this hall directly next door to the country music hall of fame. Oh, <laughs> but don't. they so, still yeah, probably uh, <laughs> people are coming for a
0: different kind but of music. probably but not the same the demographic yeah. the tickets. Right, but yeah. but
2: it's not it, yeah. it's not wall-to-wall classical music mm-hmm. either. And indeed, I think part of Alan Valentine's explicit strategy has been to diversify Diversify the music performed in response to the market. Am, am I right in yeah. that? Yes, yes.
1: Yes, Absolutely. right.
3: And I think that in Minneapolis, uh, if the, you know, there's so many ifs right now. If the orchestra comes back, if it's the, of the same quality, if, it's, uh, if there's such bad feelings that they can't market and they can't move forward and they've completely fractured their relationship with the community, those things are going to be really serious and it's going to be a long time before people come to think that, you know, I'm going to, take a chance. I'm going to go see them again. Um, there is also the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, so if you want classical music, it's of a different kind. But, um, you know, they they run a real risk of uh, completely alienating their audience, and you're going to have this new hall, and I'm not sure what the value of that will be.
0: Nina, it sounds like maybe the situation in Nashville is going to have a happier ending?
1: Well, I think what we have seen in the last few days is a reprieve. It's not a solution. Yes, they keep their hall now, and that is great for them, but they've got to still operate the hall. They've still got to pay for the staff that it takes to keep a place of your own running, and that's the real expense. The debt payments are not what have driven them into the ground. It's it's operating the building, and their annual operating budget doubled just from moving into the building Their donations have dropped by – they're half of what they were before the recession. They are not bringing in enough money in donations right now to cover their budget back when they were still renting a hall. And and they've got to have that money coming in every year to be able to operate the building they've got, or this is just a problem that's going to rear its head again farther on down the line. They've bought themselves time with this agreement, but now they've got to really do some hard work – to be able to maintain what they've got.
2: But it's not just them. The bank's in there too, um, and so is the community and so are the players. In other words, um, yes. I'm sure the management is feeling a crushing weight on their shoulders, but, you know, the bank signed up to that original loan on the same numbers that uh, the management did and the board did. So it's a, uh, one thing I would say is if, if there is a, um, going to be a solution, it's a solution where there's got to be a, a lot of shoulders put to, the, uh, put to the wheel, not just the management's shoulder.
0: Well, thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you. thank you. That was great. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were cultural consultant Adrian Ellis, Nashville Public Radio host Nina Cardona, and Minneapolis Star Tribune critic Graydon Royce. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.